Okay, this morning we continue our studies in Isaiah. We just barely got into Isaiah chapter 40 last week. And I know that a lot of you were out. So here's some more. Um, notes here. Any of you that weren't here, you can take, take it, pass it back there. There's one on each page. We got to verse 1, and that's about it. So we're going to have um, Elaine, if you'll read for us Isaiah 40, just verses 1 and 2 again. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord, and double for all her sins. Okay. And we noted, I noted last week that we come, according to your notes, we have a major division in the book here. And the first 35 chapters were basically prophecies to pre-exilic Judah. And the next four were historical, concentrating on the reign of Hezekiah. And now we get back to the prophecies in verse, in chapter 40. So this time is directed to the exiles in Judah. The first set of prophecies was before they went into exile, but now these are directed to the exiles of Judah. Now, we're not going to look these up again, but remember back in Deuteronomy 28, the God had promised Israel that if you do not keep my covenant, I am going to scatter you among the nations. Israel did not keep the covenant. God sent them into exile. And we see in Psalm 137 that He did send them into exile, and it was not a very pleasant time. It was not a slap-slap happy place. It was a place where they were virtually tormented by, by, by the Babylonians. So... <clears throat> We pick up here, the people are in exile. Isaiah is prophesying about 150 years into the future here. So he's, he's going well into the future. Remember, Israel was sent into exile in 586, and I believe it was 537 or 538 that they came back out of exile. Alright, so in your notes here, I noted that God is most likely, in verse 1, addressing a heavenly court. And that would be of angels, uh, seraphim, cherubim, seraphim and cherubim. Uh, because we have other places in Scripture where God addresses a heavenly court. Um, that's, that's the best explanation I could see of that. Um, if you're reading a King James or American Standard Version, it says, Comfort ye. Yes, comfort ye, my people. So in the Hebrew, it's actually in the plural. The second person plural where the command for comforting is given. So it's not just to a single person. In other words, it's not just God telling Isaiah to comfort my people. So it is in the form of a command. Yeah. It's talking to somebody and saying, you do that. Yeah. 
I believe it's in the in the command. I know that it's emphasized in several different ways. All right. So, the command is given to comfort. God is addressing a heavenly court. He tells him to comfort his people. And then in verse 2, we say, see, rather, that they are comforted in these ways. <coughs> that she is no longer at enmity with God. He says, speak comfort or speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended. The war is over. There's coming a time where this war, you are at war with your God right now, but there's coming a time where that war is going to be over and you will no longer be at enmity with God. <clears throat> this will not last forever. Remember how these people's mindset would have been. They were exiled into a, a land by a very vicious army. Um, Babylonians, they were cruel. And they were cruel to Israel, to uh, Judah, even after they got there. And seeing that they didn't have a whole lot of faith, they probably didn't know the prophecies very well, they didn't know whether they were ever going to come out of there or not. All looked lost. <clears throat> they had no idea what was going to happen to them. You know, that would be like maybe the Taliban coming over here and taking us captive. We would, it would seem like everything was gone. <clears throat> okay, her sins are forgiven. It says her iniquity is pardoned or her sins are forgiven. Now those two things are true for people that are, that are saved for, for uh, being born again. You're no longer at enmity with God. Remember Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you're justified, you have peace. Before that, you are at enmity or at war with God. And then when you're justified by faith, your sins are forgiven. So those are two wonderful things, to not be at war with God and to know that your sins are forgiven. So that would certainly be comforting to these people. And her punishment is over. That's the third thing. Her punishment is over. Her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. <clears throat> that doesn't seem right, does it? That's not fair. Why would God give them double for their sins? Yeah. That could be a reason. Anybody have anything else to add to that? Okay. Well, <clears throat> I have a note in my Bible from a sermon I heard on this years ago that is like your note from this Derek Kidner below that mm -hmm. um, says that double for all her sins actually means, in the original language, the matched opposite or inverse, meaning they received pardon and grace <coughs> instead of the full punishment that they deserved. Yeah. I believe that's about as good of an explanation as you're going to find. 
Yes, Charles. Uh, while we're still on the subject of the original languages, I looked it up, and comfort, yes, comfort is in the PL plural imperative. So it is. Okay. Go ahead. And PL is intensive. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, thank you, Charles. Got it. All right. Okay, now, this, this is interesting language, though. Double for your sins. Um, this, is, this language is not unique to Isaiah 40. Let's turn back, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I believe it would be worth it. Uh, let's turn back to uh, Leviticus 26. If we look at verse 18. Now God is telling them what all He's going to do to them if they're unfaithful. And He says, after, And after all this, if you do not obey Me, I will punish you seven times more for your sins. It's gone up from two to seven. <laughs> that sounds pretty bad. Okay. Look at verse... Um, 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. So that's two times. Alright, look at verse 24. Then I will also walk, then I also will walk contrary to you and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. Three times. Okay, and then verse 28. Then I will also walk contrary to you in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. Okay. Um, so I guess with double, they got off easy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, uh, but... I want you to look this up because I need somebody that's got a translation off of the critical text. Revelation 6 1 and 8 1. And then we'll go back there to Kim to Revelation 8 2 and 11 15. And then Laura 16 1. And sixteen seventeen. All right, Revelation six one and eight one. All right, Revelation six uh, one. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, "Come!" And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. All right, that's the first of seven seals. Right, what does 8 1 tell us? All right, 8 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven seals who stand before God. 
and seven trumpets were given to them. Okay. Another angel came and stood that's at good. his that's altar. Good. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay. And now let's have, so we have seven seals there. All right, let's look at eight, two. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. All right, there's seven trumpets. All right, 11.15. And the seventh angel blew the trumpet, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of the world are our Lord's and his Christ, and he shall reign forevermore. Seven seals and seven trumpets. All right, and now 16.1. Then I heard a mighty voice from the temple say to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath. All right, seven bowls of wrath. Okay, 16.17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a mighty shout came from the throne in the temple, saying, It is finished. All right. So we have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath. And God said he was going to punish them sevenfold for their sins. So, I don't know. I just think that's interesting. But he told them four times he was going to punish them seven times. So if anybody can find the fourth seven in Revelation, <laughs> that would be great. But God keeps his word. He said, I will punish you sevenfold. And he brings three sets of seven judgments upon them. These judgments, each one are really just kind of intensified instead of chronologically. But three times it shows that they've been punished seven, sevenfold. A sevenfold punishment. Yes, Charles? Uh, the pronouncements of woe and judgment on the Pharisees in Matthew 23, I believe there's seven of those, aren't there? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Look at Genesis 4.15. And I'll read that. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. So see, we have that from the very beginning of time almost. And then in uh, Genesis, that same chapter, verse 24, <clears throat> If Cain shall be avenged, this is Lamech, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfolds, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. All right, I just thought that was interesting. I thought I would run that by. See if you had any questions or comments on that. Interesting to compare what God said He was going to do to them and then looking at what God did do to them. In the uh, giving of the law and the different things, now just the Ten Commandments. But if somebody admitted their stealing, they were to pay back two times. If somebody was caught and not admitted, what was the punishment? Was it seven? I think it was four. Four. Charles? I'm not sure. Don't recall. Don't recall. It would have been interesting if that was seven. How that might fit in. Yeah. Bill, did you find <clears throat> find anything, or you might have already said something about it about the number seven? Yeah, seven uh, usually signifies 
perfection, completion, something of that nature. So yeah, it could be. You sin against you, you will be repaid fully. Perfectly. Good point. Okay, let's see. Um, Jen, can you read for us verses 3 through 8 from Isaiah 40? Okay, this could be tender words or comfortable words are spoken to the people beginning in verse 3. So we see that they are the beings have been commanded to speak comfort or speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And now we see here that Jerusalem is being spoken tenderly to. So, God's people have become a barren landscape. That's a note in the ESV study Bible that's called a barren landscape. So Isaiah hears a voice and then cries out to the people to prepare the way of the Lord. So, And the Lord did eventually come and bring them back to the land in 539. Okay. Prepare the way of the Lord. Now, if you turn to Matthew 3, we will see a further fulfillment. The Lord did come in the Old Covenant and He did bring back the people to Jerusalem. Now, they were supposed to repent, but they didn't. They, a lot of commentators say they were still in exile even though they came back to the land because they were spiritually um, so messed up. They were spiritual wrecks even after they came back to the land. There was no true repentance. So Matthew 3, 1 through 12. Chase, if you can read that to us. We'll see the New Testament fulfillment. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, 
he said to that brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay, when, when the Lord brought back the people from exile... In Isaiah, uh, after Isaiah's time in 539, the people did not repent. They were in effect still in exile. All right, we see the Lord coming again in the new covenant times. I guess about <clears throat> it was uh, when John the Baptist came. He came, and they are told to repent again. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here we see the New Testament fulfillment of this in John, the last of the Old Covenant prophets, crying out to the people that Jesus is coming. And we look at this and we see in verse 2, the first thing he says is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is fulfilling the Old Covenant prophecy of Isaiah 40, verse 1, chapter 1 of Isaiah 40, and tells us a little bit about John here. And then we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming. And he tells them, you guys are already in trouble. Y'all are nothing but a bunch of snakes. You're already in trouble. He calls them brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he tells them, don't Say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That's not going to do you any good. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And then he says, the axe is now laid at the root of, of the root of the trees. And y'all aren't bearing fruit. Y'all are going to be cut down. You're going to be thrown into the fire. I've baptized you with water unto repentance. But there is one coming after me, and he's talking about Christ here. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his one who fork, fan, is already in his hand. And he is going to thoroughly clean this place. And you're going to be burned up with unquenchable fire. So we see this right, at, right in John. John, the new covenant prophet, old covenant prophet's ministry, that they've been warned that if you do like old covenant Israel, you will be burned with unquenchable fire. They did not repent, and they were burned with unquenchable fire in A.D. 70. All right, any questions? Bill? Yeah. I think on that point too, uh, prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, Jesus actually reversed this in a way what John warned him against. 
with the so-called cleansing of the temple. A lot of people read that and think Jesus was just upset because all these money changers were doing this stuff, but he was actually rehearsing the destruction of the entire temple system. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. It wasn't like these people were caught by surprise. <laughs> All right. All right. Three things are prophesied here in Isaiah 40. In verse 3, the king is coming. Uh, the second is the king will accomplish his purpose, there will be an advance in the kingdom. And the third thing is the king's glory will be revealed to the whole world. All flesh shall see it together. The king is coming. The king is going to be advancing his kingdom. And everybody is going to see this. Alright, now in verse 6, another voice commands Isaiah to cry out. What Isaiah is commanded to cry out concerns the trustworthiness of God's Word. We see that man and the beautiful flowers and even all the rest of creation uh, is temporary. But God's Word is everlasting and reliable. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. And it is reliable. Contrast this with Hezekiah's lack of faith in the end of chapter 38. Then in chapter 38, <clears throat> verse 21, Now Isaiah had said, Let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on his mole, and he shall recover. So here we have a promise to Isaiah that he's going to recover. But then Hezekiah said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? He wants a confirming sign. The Word of God wasn't good enough. So man may fail, man may be fickle, but God's Word is both durable and dependable. Now if we look back at Deuteronomy 4, 27-31 and Leviticus 26, 40-45, you will find there, we're not going to read it, you will find there that God promises to bring them back. <clears throat> God has promised to send them into exile and that's where they are and God has also promised to bring them back and the word of our God stands forever. He cannot lie. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, we have the first instance of God's Word being challenged. God says to Adam, in the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Dying, you will die, literally. Emphasized very heavily in the Hebrew. Dying, you shall die. The uh, serpent comes along kind of undermines God's Word a little bit to begin with. And then he says, you, sh you will not surely die because God doesn't want you to be like Him. But Adam and Eve found out how whose Word was trustworthy. They found out right quick, God's Word is the one that's trustworthy. 
they were uh, expelled from the garden. And just like God said, and that day they began to die. Death entered into the world. So we see that they find out right quickly, immediately, that God's Word is trustworthy and the creature's Word is not. Um, and this should really comfort us. God has promised, made right and precious promises, not only individually to us, but to His church. The Old Covenant and New Covenant is just time after time again prophesying about how the church is going to win. That God's Word is going to cover the sea, uh, uh, cover the um, earth as the waters cover the sea. And <clears throat> the nations will be baptized. So it's the same for us. We, we live in what looks like a very dark culture. I mean, you can't watch the news at night and say, all right, all right, man, things are great. <laughs> uh, now, if you're like me, you throw something at the TV set. Um, but all these things are temporary. They're going to pass. God's Word is reliable, and it stands forever. The promises that God has made in His Word are going to come true. The creation is temporary. What you see is going to pass away, but God's Word will stand forever. Okay. Anybody have anything to add to that? <clears throat> statement there in uh, Isaiah. 40 verse 8, the dress withers the flower phase is the word of the God of our God stands there. That kind of shoots the uh, New Testament church out on it. Yeah. They kind of leave off all of the half of the Bible. And, uh, Three quarters. It's like it's not part of it, you know. Yeah. God, we believe your word, but we're going to throw out three quarters of it. <laughs> no foundation for it. Though. Yeah. One of the reasons they don't get revelation right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, uh, you know, a person that's converted in a dispensational church, first place he's going to is revelation. Oh, yeah. That's spent a lot of time there. Yeah. yeah. All right, anything else? That's really about as far as we will get today. And I really believe, even though we've only gotten through verse 8, that we will get through the rest of Isaiah 40 next week. Okay. Um, Chase, will you close us in prayer, please? All right. Our Father, we 